And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. All right. We know that all businesses need resources. Resources come in many shapes and forms, but the wild card amongst all resources is money, otherwise known as capital. With it, you can acquire other resources. So how do you prepare to raise capital? That is exactly what we're going to talk about in today's episode of Startup Hustle. Now, before we before I introduce my guest today, I want to let you know that this episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. SVB, as they're known, has been supporting innovative founders, companies, and investors with targeted financial services and expertise for over 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank, built for what's next. Learn more at svb.com. Big shout out. We love the folks over at SVB. They do great stuff for startups. Speaking of doing great stuff for startups, today's guest is Garen Schwarberg, and he's a VP at 645 Ventures. Go to 645ventures.com. Normally out of New York, but hailing the Startup Hustle podcast from Utah today. Garen, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, and, and you know, as I mentioned, you and your firm, you're you're a VP over at 645, and you guys do a lot of uh, interesting and engaging investments with startups. I'll let you go ahead and talk about that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so 645 is an early stage venture capital fund focused mainly on seed and series A rounds. So really kind of just the beginning of, uh, of a lot of these companies, mainly in enterprise software, some infrastructure companies, and then a small amount of consumer tech. Um, you know, as, as you said, we're based in New York, but really geographically agnostic when it comes to our investments, have portfolio companies all across the country and, and even some internationally. Um, you know, we just raised a $160 million fund three that we announced back in December. So all exciting things going on for us. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about, we've had several episodes and not all of them are live yet, but about VC venture capital, raising capital. It's a real hot topic here on the show. And what we want to talk about today is preparing to do it because it's a full-time job. It's And there's a lot that can go right and there's a lot that can go wrong. But overall, there's some real fundamental things that it's a good idea to be prepared for in your opinion, like what's the most, like, what's the most fundamental thing? I mean, is it just the basic pitch deck and presentation? Is it something else? Yeah. Or? So, yeah it's, it's an interesting question. And I think that a lot of people, when, when they raise in capital, especially from venture, from VC funds, they think about that pitch deck and they think about like what it means when they're actually in the room. Um, but I think one of the most important things is what comes long before that. You know, when I, whenever we're working with any of our companies to raise follow-on capital, we talk to them a lot about it, it's kind of a distinct process. It's the, the process first and then the pitch second. And you have to think about those separately and prepare for them separately to really um, kind of put yourself in the best position for a successful raise. So, you know, a lot of people think that this is going to, that the process of raising capital is going to be easier and faster than it is. Um, I've been through this. I've, I've coached people on it. I've done it. I've all of it. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be upfront. It's excruciating. Yeah. Like, I don't think I know. And all right. So episode two of the entire startup hustle podcast is titled getting funded sucks. And other than introduce, other than introducing the show at episode one, 
literally Matt Watson and I felt that was maybe the most valuable thing and message we could put out there. Um, it, I mean, it, the reason, it, well, let's talk, let's talk about that for a second. Why does getting funded suck for most people? Um, most of the time people are going into it blind. I feel like there isn't a, there isn't a single playbook out there. And, and that's what a lot of the times people look for. And the fact that there isn't a right answer, answer, there's a lot of gray area. And, and then finally, like getting rejected sucks, you know, as anyone who's ever dated before in their entire life can tell you getting rejected is not fun. And then that's what the majority of the fundraising process is, is, you know, I would say that, you know, even the best companies experience a rejection rate, you know, upwards of 90% of the company of the, of the funds that they pitch. And so uh, I don't think any of that lends itself to a really fun experience. And let's repeat that. You said the best companies get a night are lucky if they only get rejected 90% of the time. Now that's the best because you were saying that and I had to process that for a second. I was like, okay, he said the best because 99.9% is probably more of the overall average. I know we've had a lot of VC uh, uh, guests in the past, all different stages, all different industries. Most of them tell you that they're expecting to hear 100 to 150 pitches to maybe invest in one company. Does that sound about right? Uh, yeah, it does. And so I'll say just for for us internally, you know, we are, you know, seeing multiple, you know, multiple thousand companies a, a month. And this so this isn't like we're diving deep into them. We're, we're seeing these pitches. A lot of the times they're just automatic passes because, you know, they're not they don't fall in a category or a stage in which we invest. You know, we won't we don't touch biotech or medical devices or anything like that. So that's a you know, that goes on, but we are actually diving in and like having conversations with founders to a few hundred every single month. And we are targeting doing between seven and 10 deals a year. So, um, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly a process that, uh, you know, if you, if you're not prepared for that aspect of it going in, it, it could be a slap in the face early on. Well, I think one of the things when it comes to preparing to raise capital is aligning yourself with the right air quotes here stuff, you know, and, and firms because, all right, so I'll give you an example. As you're aware, I'm the CEO and founder of Fullscale. Go to fullscale.io if you want to see what we do. We build software teams, but we're a service company and that's not even something your firm would invest in, correct? Uh, correct. Yeah, that's right. So, so I'm wasting my time even sending my stuff in. Uh, which, yes. So yeah. And that's which is fair. I mean, that's, yeah. that's fair. Cause you don't invest in my type of business. Yep. So you talk about, you know, like the thing is, is if you're preparing, align yourself with investors options and just like put yourself in the right lane. I mean, if you're trying to play football and you're at center court of the Lakers, you know, hardwood floor, you're not in the right, you're not in the right arena. And you know, there's, oh man. So with yesterday's guest, we were talking on VC and that was a guy named Ron Shigata. And he was trying to figure out how many, so he, he's, he's old like me. Sorry, Ron, if you're listening, but he was, you know, he's out in Berkeley, California. And he was talking about remembering when there was only 20 to 30 VC entities. And he was trying to figure out how many there are now. And there's literally thousands. Like he estimated 5,000 plus. I don't know if you know, but does that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, over the last 10 years, there has been an absolute rise in what you call micro funds. You know, these folks that have raised between, you know, five and and $20 million to be able to go and invest. They write, they're writing smaller checks typically. Um, But that's right. There, you know, there's been an absolute plurification of, of capital out there. And in a lot of ways, that's great for the entrepreneur. You know, there's 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 mm-hmm. more opportunities to get funded. You're not going to the same four or five Silicon Valley institutions, and um, and like they're really the gatekeepers to capital in the space. And so I think that there's um, you know some negatives to it as a you know like there's just so you know the the VC industry right now is what we call th- frothy. You know, like people are getting money from anywhere, but for the founders. It's a very positive thing. Not only 
is there more places to find capital? Also, uh, VCs are having to invest in these value add services in addition to capital to, to make themselves stand out um, for those best companies who can really choose to raise from anyone they want. And I want to come back to the value add in a second. But um, so with any strength usually comes weakness and people don't realize that. But your strength, your biggest strength is often your biggest weakness. For me, I'll give you an example. I'm a talker, which can be a strength. It can be a weakness. Now, with 5,000 plus funds, regardless of their size, that's a big strength for the individual startup founder. At the same time, it's a weakness because where the hell do you start? Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we're talking about. So, you know, as a salesperson, if you all right, so I'll give you an example. I used to sell pianos a long time ago and Man. I worked in this. I had this big store in Washington, D.C. And you walk in and there's 150 pianos in there. Well, Mary Jane Homemaker, who just walked in with her five kids that were about to destroy my store. Wait, we're getting off trap. No, but she walking in wasn't going to buy all 160 units in the store. So the very first thing we had to do was try to, okay, what are you looking for? I want a grand piano. Okay, cool. Now we just put 120 of them off that we, that we know she didn't want to buy and we're down to 40. Now, the thing is, is if I sat there and tried to sell her every single item, all 160 in the store, I probably wouldn't have made a sale because eight hours later, we still wouldn't have gotten to what she wanted to do. Yeah. So the same way with sales where you're qualifying and you're trying to figure out the right fit, you're, you're selling like, and if you don't believe that you're a salesperson as you're preparing to raise capital, you need to open your eyes because that's exactly that's right. what you're doing. That's right. You're selling yourself. You're well, in many cases, you're selling yourself almost more than the company, yep. but beginning to segment what funds do what, how they do it. Now you mentioned at six, four, five, you guys are seed and early, earlier stage. There are definitely fun. Well, there are there's probably more seed and early stage funds out there than anything else. Maybe not by overall volume invested, but by number of firms, I would think that there are probably more of them, but explain yeah. for those, for those that are still new to the process, what a seed and an early stage investment firm, like what, 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 who qualifies? Yeah, absolutely. So they're, the the stages has, have been uh, mixed over over the last you know ten years or so. So there's not necessarily a core definition of what seed is, what Series A is, so on and so forth. But in general, um, seed is what we like to talk about. Folks that are still trying to find product market fit. They maybe have a great idea, and and it and it has. Um, potential to grow into something very large, but they don't have an exact definition of who their core customer is yet and haven't necessarily found that place in the market. Once you hit series A, um, that starts to change and you've, start, you've started to experience early signs of that traction of that product market fit. Um, and so really leaning into that um, can allow you to you know, raise larger rounds at higher valuations as a result of it like being de-risked in, in some regards for, for the VCs which are funding you. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really good way to put it. Um, we've recently, so for those of you listening, if you wanna listen to myself and Matt Watson's 52 part series about how to start a tech company, you can hear that every Wednesday on the Startup Hustle podcast. But one of the episodes that we recently recorded was the reasons that startups fail. And a lack of a product market fit is number one. Um, well, technically, number one is they ran out of money, but we excluded <laughs> that because that's kind of a that's kind of a default answer for all of them. Now, when you're when a VC is is looking at my stuff, how do you know, like, what are, what's the conversation you're having about the product market fit? Like, how do you know if I found it? Because I'd like to believe it's probably not just me telling you I have. Yeah. So, you know, our process of evaluating companies um, is interesting. You know, we really stick to, first and foremost, we'll stick to the timeline of the investor, you know, some, or the, of the founder. Sometimes founders come in and say, you know, we have, you know, strong interest from, from some VCs. We have two weeks before we want to make our decision. And so we'll 
we'll adapt our timeline to hit that. But in general, um, what we do is we have an initial call with the founder where we get to know them and we get to know their story, the product that they're building. Um, from there, each Monday, we have a full team multi-hour meeting where we run through all the deals that each team member is excited about. Um, we, everyone can give their opinion, ask some questions. We, you know, what are the need to believe questions that we have to, in order to you know, move forward, get to an investment? Um, from there, we'll typically do another call where we loop in a general partner at the firm, um, and we'll often ask for, for diligence. So we'll go through financials, go-to-market plans, product usage data, um, we'll also at times ask for customer and management references so we can hear from others about the product and, and about the founders um, that we may back. Um, and, and then after that, we really go through and, and we'll either extend a term sheet or provide a pretty detailed uh, email or call about the reasonings why it's not a right fit for us right then. So when it comes to, so all of that is the story of a company and the story of its founders. What makes us like for you, and this is just, this doesn't necessarily even mean the other folks at your firm, but what makes a story compelling when you hear it? Yeah, for sure. So I think that there are some core elements to every pitch that we want to see and that I think can make or break a story. And so it's first talking about the market, you know, and, and how big it can be. VCs run on what we call the power law. So if we make 30 investments, the expectation is that two, three, four of those turn into something big and all the others go to zero or close to it. So a VC's portfolio is made off of those two or three winners. And if you're not selling a story that's big enough, then we can't buy into the, the potential for that to be one of our major winners. So, so that's first. Um, you know, Second, really understanding what the customer pain point is. Um, and how they're how they're facing that in the market. So making sure that you know, like you know, this is a major issue, and people are willing to pay for it, you know, to have it fixed or off their plate. Um, so then introducing your product and how it solves those problems, obviously, and then finally, um, how you're planning to to bring your product to market and scale the company. Um, and that kind of relates back to that initial market piece. Like if we don't see a big picture, it's not something that's really going to get us out of our seats excited. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know, there's, <laughs> I, I've asked this to everyone and, and that is in the investment and VC space is, you know, do you bet on the jockey or the horse? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's which a, do you prefer? Um, I think at the earlier stage, you need to be more willing to bet on the jockey just because a product isn't necessarily built yet. Um, you, you, now you have to be able to uh, see the vision of the horse that they want to build. You know, you, you have, you have to, um, it has to be something that you could see being a reality or being an everyday staple in three, five, 10 years time, whatever that may be. Um, but I think at the earliest stages, it's, it's, it's more important to be okay betting on the jockey because a lot of times you're just not going to see the traction or the, the product at that, at that point in order to get in at those prices. That is a universal 100% answer, by the way. Yeah, um, exactly. And you know, the, the, the greatest jockey in the world riding a donkey and the Kentucky Derby isn't going to win either. Yeah. So, but you can have a prize-winning pony, and if you put me on the, you put my my big ass on the back of it, it's got to drag it all the way through the racetrack. That's I'd be a terrible jockey. I think two hundred and fifty pounds might be a little big for a jockey. So um, now, when it comes to telling the story, what are a couple things that are red flags like that you hear uh, that you know I'm telling you my story, and just like what are things that that send up the signal flares that either I'm full of shit or I don't know. Yeah, I would say the easiest one is not knowing your metrics that that matter. You know, like a lot of the times, you know, you'll have all of the pretty metrics in your deck and you'll have the ones that you've hit on during your pitch practice. And so all of that. But then there's a nuance that 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 we notice and we ask about, you know, OK, what is the, you know, 
you know, what's the actual percentage of your customers that are paying for the product right now? Let's say there's a freemium, a freemium model. And so we understand what your revenue numbers are, but like, what are the percentage of your, of your uh, customers that are actually paying and not being able to answer that kind of stuff offhand is, is a red flag for us because that's what, you know, typically we're speaking with the CEO or, or co, you know, COO, co-founder, and, and those are things that just need to be, you know, part of your everyday, everyday knowledge, everyday language, um, if you're in that role. Yeah, it's kind of an old adage. Uh, know your, if you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's, and that's hard in early stages, because one of the things that, and, you know, I don't make investments the size that you have, but, you know, we've invested almost $1.5 million in the last 18 months here and regionally in different startups. And, you know, when it comes to the, the numbers, uh, the earlier the stage, the harder it is to have any idea. And some of the things like that I'm looking for is people say, okay, well, what's your, what's your cost of acquiring a customer? And they'll be like $32. Okay. Okay. So how many, how many customers have you acquired? at that rate, because I find a lot of times, you know, the sample size is like five. Yep. And that's kind of tough to buy into because the question is, is, well, I, you know, I'll give you an example. Like it's real easy to like for place a Facebook ad at $15 a day and be like, Oh, it's 50 cents. It's 50 cents a click. That's what it costs. Well, the thing is, is in the, and Facebook will even show you why you're placing the ad that that becomes really steep. So if you have to go from $15 a day to $150 a day, that might, might now cost you a dollar 50 a click. But yeah. if you need, if you need 10,000 clicks a day, you need 10,000 clicks a day. So, and I know that that's not exactly related to VC, but the point is, is not everything scales in a linear way. So, you know, trying to find five new customers a month as opposed to 500 might be a dramatically different thing. And then another, you talk about, boy, the the TAM or the total addressable market. Um, Some things are so deeply niche Yep. that you got to look at that. Like one of the platforms that we actually invested in is called Stenovate and that's here in Kansas city. And they, they deal solely to court reporters now because they, do, they only have one other competitor in the entire market. We were cool with that, but we had to really look at that and say like, well, how many court reporters are there? How many stenographers <laughs> actually exist? And then it's like a hundred thousand. Right. And then yeah. how many of them want this tool? And then you're like, okay, that's another number. And then now go back to my, to my discussion of these metrics. Like if you have to, if, if your plan involves needing to add 20,000 users, Holy shit, that could be like 40% of the entire market. So you got to have something that's pretty universally adopted to be able to get there. Now, at the same time, you often hear there's riches in the niches. So, uh, you know, some of the some of the best advice I've ever received on this podcast, I think it was episode 12. And I need to look this up because I've quoted this too many times to not know, but Laryl Holt, who is the founder of CarStar. Now you're from Kansas City, so you've probably seen CarStar all around town. They uh-huh. made auto body shops like a franchise model. So they provided the infrastructure. So Laryl was the founder of that and, uh, um, and his sister-in-law worked for me at a prior company. He was also in my book, Balance Me. But Laryl came on the show and I said, Laryl, tell us who you are. He goes, I'm a coward. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? You're brave as hell. He goes, no, I like to take things that no one else is doing. And I go do them in places where everyone will leave me alone so I can get real good at it. Yeah. But the, the thing was, is when he says he was a coward, he's not brave. He's not David taking on Goliath. So when you look at, at niche and stuff like that, how does a VC firm look at that? Like, is that calculated into the into the mix or like, cause you say the big, oh, well, okay. I want to address, I want to build a search engine. I got a huge total addressable market. It could be a trillion dollar thing, but I'm guaranteed to not beat Google. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think that there's, there is a balance there. Um, you know, a lot of people viewed Uber as niche when it, when it first came out because they were going after the black car market or it's, that was the story that they were telling is that they were enabling, you know, high net worth individuals to easily order black cars whenever, whenever they wanted. Now that was never their full vision. Their full vision was to take in, 
you know, completely re revolutionize the transportation industry and in which, which they've been able to do. But um, I think that, so, so that, so that's one example is that you really have to understand not only who is their initial customer profile, but also their um, ideal customer profile that co may come one year, two years, five years down the line. Um, so, so that's number one. And then number two, I think that there is room for uh, products disrupting, you know, sleepy, unsexy markets. So, so like these folks that are coming in and yeah, there, you know, there is, uh, there's already someone doing it, but it's not necessarily a thing, but like what you have to do is understand truly, um, you know, what percentage of whatever market they could capture. And then what is the price that they're charging in order to really understand the, the true opportunity, the true value of, uh, of that company. Speaking of capturing a large percentage of the market, uh, you know, Silicon Valley bank does about 50% of the background funding and banking for companies that hit a series A status. And it seems like a good time to remind everyone that this episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Silicon Valley Bank. SVB has been supporting innovative founders, companies, and investors with targeted financial services and expertise for over 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank built for what's next. Learn more at svb.com. You, you're pretty familiar with those guys. We are, you know, a lot, many of our portfolio companies uh, work with Silicon Valley Bank. Um, we're, we're close with a few of the team members over there. And, uh, and you know, in, in addition to all the banking services, they've continued to kind of build out their, their value add offering similar to, similar to uh, VCs. And so uh, it's, you know, certainly a great option um, for, uh, for folks looking for banking services for their startups. Banking's tough for startups in general. We're glad to have them. They're one of our title sponsors at the new Startup Hustle TV show that's been out. At the time of this recording, we're on day nine, man. Day nine. So man. Uh, I think the best advice I can give everyone listening is don't start your own TV show. Um, so, <laughs> so when it comes to when it let's try to get that funded, by yeah, the way, right. God, I can only imagine how many no's do you go through on the way to that? That was an interesting process. You talk about learning how to do a lot of shit and learning how to do it really quickly. Like, what's a sizzle reel? <laughs> I don't know. Let's figure it out. And I remember watching a video that I made that literally told me, he's like, yeah, don't start your own TV show because it's probably never going to get picked up. I'm like, this is super inspiring. Um, the only, but it the was only good way advice. to learn, man, is to do it. So the only way to learn right. is to do it. So, so good for you. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's been fun. I mean, really, for us on that, the reason that I, and you talk about, you know, VCs, and so many funds are focused on software now, but there's so many different types of entrepreneurs. And we thought, the thing that I found through this podcast, and just through being totally fascinated with entrepreneurship for my whole entire life is that entrepreneurs all have the same problems. We often refer to them differently. And take different approaches to solving those problems. But really, in the end, they're very, very similar. So you know, we started with a story of, of seven different businesses, we have nine different cast members, and everybody has the same problems, like my yeah. hypothesis has already proven itself. So and it and it's kind of it's kind of fun. Um, now, speaking of, of you were just talking about niches and the different things that, you know, the different solutions and problems that startups solve. How often do you look at something and say, okay, this could work here, but it has five other use cases or scenarios where it could pivot, expand, or move to? Is that ever a consideration? Um, I think it, it is a consideration. It's often a consideration, but what we're doing, you know, we're not buying majority stakes of these companies we're minority investors and as a result we rely on the founders to to lead the company where in the direct the best direction that they see fit so you know these are things that we can identify offer up as po possibilities however you know what we one thing that we have learned is to trust people when when they say things so if you know if, if a founder mentions like that this is the direction that he wants to go and this is what he views as best we'll take that into consideration and, and understand, you know, is, do we agree? Is this something that we can back? Or if we've already backed it, you know, this is something that we're behind a hundred percent because you know, the industry far better than we do as, you know, as investors in, at, at this stage. 
Yeah, you know, and as the CEO and founder at Full Scale, where we build software with and for people, you know, that's something I personally look at because, you know, you have this buy versus build decision in a lot of cases. So, like, I, as the founder of Gigabook, I actually used its code base to invest in another business. That was my buy-in. Hmm because we were able to clone it and repurpose it to do something completely different, which was a significant value for the founder, you know, because there's all this crap you didn't have to build an acceleration in the timeline of anything, especially in early stage is really good because those are treacherous waters and difficult to get through. So, okay, so you were we've been talking about founders and founders come in different shapes and forms and ages and different genders and all of it, uh, but they also have different titles. So when it comes to uh, having a core team of founders, you hear some people talk about, well, some companies don't like to invest in companies that, and founders that are solo, that don't have a co-founder. What's your, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what's your preference when it comes to a founding team and like what core ingredients exist? Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't think we are opposed by any means to doing solo founders. We've done several, um, but it is an added risk. You know, it's just, it's one person calling the shots rather <laughs> than a, a collection of people making decisions that, that could, you know, I, I think whatever, you know, four eyes is better, are better than two and, you know, two brains is better than one always. And so, so looking at it that way, we, we do understand that, um, and then it depends on the type of product that you're looking at. So a lot of the times, since we're doing dealing with deep technology, you know, software systems that need to be out, we we like to see a technical co-founder there. So there's a CEO typically who's running the business side, and then a technical co-founder who is you know can can build the product and build out that aspect of the team. Um, like those are things that a lot of VCs prefer to see but saying that the lack of any of these is a deal breaker is 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 incorrect because you know a lot of times we've seen you know solo founders ceo non-technical co-founder or founders come in um but they have a proven ability that to recruit technical teams from from um past uh you know, pass things on their resume. And, and so really looking at that and examining the, the team in a holistic view um, is important and saying, you know, saying that any, you know, either missing or having any one aspect is a deal breaker uh, is a little short-sighted. Yeah, I agree with you. And at the, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I, I was, well, cause I'd had a bad experience with a business partner in the past and, you know, choosing your partner's and co-founders wisely is suggested because yeah. uh, it's actually literally could be can be faster and easier to get rid of your partner, meaning your spouse, yes. than your business partner. Agreed. And it is a business marriage. Uh, yes. I talk about that in my book, Million Dollar Bedroom, and it's important because these they're they're kind of locked in. I see a lot of people either getting ready to make big mistakes. You know, they're like. Yeah, I don't know. They're, they well, you talk about having a, a technical co-founder, so they don't have one, and they find a buddy that's a programmer that's going to work an hour a day, and they give them forty percent of the company or something yeah. goofy like that. So, you know, you get some, get some some stuff in there that that isn't always a good mix. When it comes to the to the solo founder, and they well, you hear the term key man, which we should say key person because that could be male or female. Yeah. But the reason that that's risky is well, first off. If you get hit by a bus, I, I call it the bus rule. What happens if, if the bus rule kicks in and you, know, you right. get hit by a bus, you get sick, um, things can ebb and flow very sharply with solo founders. At the same time, there, there can be some pluses to it because maybe they don't need a consensus. Now, my, my business partner at Full Scale and also the CEO and founder of Sacrify, Matt Watson, talks a lot about it. So he was the founder of Venn Solutions. They had a $150 million exit in 2012, but he'll be the first to criticize the way they set up their company because they had five total founders yep. and they had this goofy super majority rule. And like they had to get five people to agree on anything, which was already shitty enough until they literally one of the one of the co-founders had some personal issues and they needed to remove him. 
Now think about that. They literally needed all five votes. So they needed to convince this dude to vote to remove himself. Yeah. And that's a shitty setup. Now, some of what could have helped uh, avoid that are possible advisors or a board. So do you need a team of advisors? Is that, is that advisable? Yeah. So there are different types of advisors. You know, there are informal advisors. So those folks that, um, are typically more on the on the early state you know, at the earliest stages that you know like we, we you know we're building something you know we're a, a medical tech company we're building something you know that will service hospitals it'd be smart to have a few hospital administrators you know that that are at least providing us insight into what the customer wants and what the customer needs um so that's that and then there's the second step which is um, you know, more formal advisors, so folks that you have given small amounts of equity to in exchange for reg- recurring meetings and regular um, insight and advice, and and we see that being um, you know beneficial a lot of the times. It's you know it's something that you can typically get you know very world class folks in a particular mm-hmm. um, in a in a particular area by by offering small amounts of equity there, and then finally. It's the board piece of things. And this is something that um, we think a board of advisors, um, of well-selected advisors uh, that have done what you're doing before is, is, is a benefit. However, it does mean that to some extent, if you're organizing a, a, a formal board, um, you know, giving up voting power. To, to some again, and again, it's a it's a conversation that you, as a founder, or you as your co-founding team, need to decide if that's right for you. And and I mean, and if it's not, maybe going down the venture capital path of fundraising may not be right for you, because a lot of those times, um, you know, if if uh, if an investor is putting in a significant amount of money, they'll expect uh, a board seat in return. Um, and um, if that's not a partnership that you're um, you should be excited for that partnership. And if you're not, maybe it's something you should rethink. Yeah. And, you know, the advisory board, I don't want to call it a new phenomenon because it's been around for a while, but the, the, there's a big difference between a board of directors and an advisory board. A board of directors has some real, real deep rooted power, basically. So, and this is where I've seen early stage companies fail a little bit because, all of a sudden, well, here you are, say I'm a, and I make you, I put you on my board and then another investor on my board. And then that board is able to control my entire company because they have a two to three, they have a two to one vote. And that's where things can get a little squirrely sometimes because you can, you can paint yourself in a corner pretty quickly and have zero control over what you're doing now an advisory board. And I'm going to, I'm going to give someone some, everyone some advice here. Cause I'm a big believer in advisory boards. I think that, but you have to give those advisors some vested interest in your success. Yeah. Like, cause the good ones, they're busy, successful people. And look, it's not, it's not unfair to expect busy, successful people to want to find value in the time and energy that they expend in the world. So you give you, uh, it, it can be set up a, a lot of different ways, but you're not paying for it's Oh, well, half a percent or 1% of my company. That's really expensive for a quarterly meeting. Is it? Cause you're not paying for the meeting. You're paying for that person's lifetime of experience and them helping you avoid pitfalls and the good advice. And honestly, in some cases, when you're preparing to raise capital, the street cred they bring with them, you know, yep. knowing that, and, and I mean, do I, I would, I think we'd be remiss if we would say that, that companies that write the, that entities that write checks don't look at the team. Like, Hey, this is, these are some really great people giving really great advice. And you talk about the informal, I might be an informal advisor for about a thousand companies then, because I, I really have made myself available just for like, well, I don't know, just input because I like to help people out at the same time. Um, I don't usually accept advisory board stuff because really, and this is grim, but the reality is most companies are going to fail. Um, so you, if you're, if you are an advisor and you're owning equity, I don't know, I mean, I just, I'm at this point, I'm trying to keep things simple. The number of K ones that I had to file just last year was stupid. 
Yeah. The, I'm, compl- I'm yeah. complaining about that to you, but you I can only imagine what that stack well, looks like. Well, but I, but last there, thing there's I will, a level of complexity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing I will add to that, um, that I think, it, you know, this is, is to try before you buy when it comes to advisors, um, especially the ones that you're going to give up small bits of equity to. Um, you, sh- as a founder, you should have a reasonable expectation that you can run a process identify to to identify the best advisor for you and and uh and so you know identify four or five people that fit that mold which you're looking for uh, you know maybe two or three of them are interested and ask them to be informal advisors for the first quarter or the first two quarters and then given your experience with them how you work together the level of effort that they put in and actually the the tangible advice that they're bringing to the table um then you can extend uh, uh, the potential offer for for a more formal position um I, I mean i think we've seen that work very well in the past and and people get tripped up when they identify someone that maybe has the perfect background um but doesn't necessarily have the um you know the the people skills or the the rapport with the founders that would be would be desired in a in an advisor relationship and 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 to simplify that write your contract well so you can get out of it if they're not doing what you need them to do is basically what it comes down to and i've actually had to do that um had an advisor at gigabook that just wasn't doing anything and you know we had thought that out ahead of time so uh, and that's related to particular amounts of activity or just certain things. And typically you want to take the, you want to vest them or give them the shares or whatever over. Well, we would write it as simple as after 24 months of participation and participation is defined as yep. that simple. Agreed. And, and then if they're not participating, you have the ability to address it. If that doesn't work, off with their heads. Well said. Is that, is that well fair? Said. Is that yep. too, is that too mean? No, I well, mean, that's really what you're doing. Well, I think that's that you really have to. I think you have to fail fast in startup world. Like I, I think that's just it's it's just key is to like, you know, you're gonna make mistakes. That's just the truth. You're gonna make mistakes, but identifying those mistakes quickly and 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 uh, taking steps to remedy them, um, and it is is vitally important. And that's not to say be, being um, you know quick on the trigger. You know, you you have to make sure that like yeah. what you did was a true mistake, not just one poor interaction or whatever, like whatever it may be. But um, understanding where you failed and taking steps to remedy that quickly, I think, is important. That that's where the warning shot comes in, and <laughs> you know, so and then the head, and then the yeah. head. So okay, so er, everyone's trying to get. I want to give the pitch, baby. How do I get the meeting? Let's talk about that for a minute. So first off, there's a lot of reasons that companies aren't investing in you. Um, And, you know, you talk about funds that we talked about getting in alignment with entities and and firms and funds that invest in your kind of business. But some of them are, are maxed out. Some of them have already expended their capital. Maybe they have other commitments and doing stuff. They might still take meetings and that's where it starts because your first goal with ever you submit anything or whenever you're reaching out, you want to get the meeting. What are some things, what are some tips and things you prepare for to get the meeting? Like what gets me a meeting? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one of the most important things is something that we talked about earlier and that's um identifying the people that you want to go after and who are the right people. So that doesn't mean just, so this means what are the funds that you want to go after as well as the partners at the funds that you want to target, you know, think through things like track record, investment themes, you know, industry Rolodex, like, are these people going to be able to help me in my journey? Is this a right, is this the right type of um, firm VC firm or partner for me? Um, So, and then, as I mentioned, like building a list of, 40 to 50 of those at least because of that 90% rejection rate I think is important early on. Now, once you have the people that you want to go after, um, try by, you know, as, as, as much as I hate to say this, the, the VC world is still um, 
network run to some extent. And this, this is an issue because it limits access to capital for folks that don't necessarily have the traditional background or are from the, you know, from the coasts or went to the Ivy league school and Stanford MBA. So, so it's not a good, it's not a good thing, but most deal flow for the majority of VCs still comes through warm introductions, um, you know, in, uh, industry events, other VCs reaching out. Um, so try by whatever means you can to secure a warm intro. If you don't do your research, you know, find firms and partners that are looking for exactly what you're building. Like firm websites, blogs, Twitter accounts are chock full of useful information on what a firm cares about at that particular moment. You know, for example, like 645, we publish our investment themes directly on our website. This is what we're looking for. This is what gets us excited right now. And fr so from there, if you, you should craft a compelling email with a very well thought out subject line and reach out directly to the investor that, that um, is leading that charge at the firm to explain why what you're doing fits directly in there. And that should increase open rates, you know, help get your foot in the door, at least, you know, a small amount. You know, there's another thing to consider is, you know, the as the folks that you're trying to get the attention of, they they see hundreds and thousands of deals. So what are you doing to stand out? I'm going to just tell you up front, folks, no one wants to see your 80 page business plan on the first intro. Keep it simple. Like if you can't fit your core, like that's why the one pager exists or the executive summary. And you're you, you're not winning the deal on that email. So yeah. you're, the purpose of the email is to, or, or the outreach is to get someone's attention so you can talk to them about it. And yeah. you, need to be, you need to be clear and concise and understand and empathize with the recipient. Like, okay, so there's a thousand deals coming through my inbox today or wherever. Why is mine going to stand out? And that is not by overwhelming the recipient with, information right up front because that tldr too long didn't read is a real thing and you got to be you know like i said sh short and concise now i agree with you on the warm intro and the reason the warm intro is so important is because there's a lot of great relationships that have been forged amongst people in these industries and like I, honestly i could get you i could get you a meeting with a whole lot of different vcs i can't tell you if they're going to give a shit about what you're pitching. But the reason is, is because I've spoken to literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of founders. Right. I've made investments myself. I, I have a company that services people in the industry. And also I, I don't ask a whole lot. So like, can I and will I are two completely different things. So if you want the warm intro, you also have to sell me. You know, because I don't, I, I, I pride myself in not asking for stuff. So when I do ask, someone's at least going, or at least paying attention. So, yep. you know, the, don't assume that someone can, will, or could. I think you need to treat asking your warm intro, the person for a warm intro, the same way that you would treating the person that you want to hear the pitch. Like, because that's the thing is I'm not going to embarrass myself by putting an unprepared you or your shitty documents or your completely unthought out presentation in front of the best parts of my network. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's important too. Yeah. I would say, I would say to simplify, like make it easy for that person to say yes. Like that, that's that. And, and it's like, what are the steps that you need to do to make it easy for Matt to, to say yes, to, to send that email along to, to intro. And it's like, you know, creating a draft blurb where they can just literally copy and paste it in. This is what these guys are doing, including your LinkedIn profiles. Cause like, these are the things that founders care about. These are the things that Matt will want to send on to, to, you know, pique their interest. So, so make it easy for him to do so um, is, is just the last piece of that, that I'll mention. Life hack. If you want people to help you, make it easy for them to help you. That's right. Now, I learned a lot about this from book number one to book number two that I published. So in book number one, I, which was called Balance Me, I reached out and I asked a whole bunch of people. I'm like, hey, my book came out today. Will you share it? And uh, like 90% of people are like, well, what do you want me to say? I was like, shit, really? 
Like you don't know how to, you know, and you're sitting there thinking, you're like, you don't know how to make a post in Facebook. But the thing yeah. is, is a confused mind almost always says no. So then second book comes out a few months later and I completely repurposed my approach. I, I literally was like, I prepared links, little blurbs, like, hey, my friend Matt wrote a cool book about his story as an entrepreneur. Check it out. I gave him an image to post. I gave him the links. I did everything. And yep. guess what? Books, the book shot to number one the day it came out because I was able to engage. I, it made it easy for people to help me. The first time I did not. I thought that I had by just asking, but make it easy. So I think you're spot on with, okay, give me the synopsis of your company. And I don't mean 10,000 words. Give me three or four bullet points. Give me the why, what are you looking for? And in why should they give it to you? Boom. Yep. You know, and that's another thing too, is all, and this is a common thing. Like, Oh God, it went the, the, now it went way down when the pandemic hit. Cause I wasn't seeing like hundreds of people a week. But when I was, it was like, can you introduce me to so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so? You had this lady on your podcast. Can I meet her? You know, I'm like, why? You know, and who are you? First yeah. off, who are you? Yeah. Like, I, I, tell me your name again, and, you know, or whatever. And it's some of that, I'm not trying to sound shitty about it. But when people, th when, when, when you have resources or access People swarm to that and there's not a problem with it, but you got to stand out. So I think that another key thing with that is, you know, make some deposits before you're trying to make withdrawals in yeah. life, just in life in general. Like, you know, if you want something from someone and you have like provide value or do something, you know, and don't lead with the ask right away. Like, you know, buy me a drink first, just in life. You can buy yeah. me a drink. I don't, I don't drink a whole lot, but if you if you offer to buy it, I'm probably a lot more apt to take it. Okay, so la last the last thing here before we begin to finalize, and thanks for joining me today, Garen. This has been this has been fun and interesting. Um, all right, so competition concerns, like you know, and that's <laughs> oh man. If I talk to one more person that tells me they don't have any competition and within three minutes of me Googling, I've proved that to be very false. I'm going to like just quit trying. But what? how do you look at competition? You, know, you talk about the 800 pound gorilla in the room or some really like majorly resourced competitor. Like what are the what are the factors that a VC firm looks at when it comes to your competition? For sure. So so we try to categorize uh, competition into, into two categories. And this is a gross oversimplification, but, uh, for, for the sake of, for, for this, you know, and it's essentially good competition and bad competition, good competition are large legacy organizations that have been doing things the same way for a long time. And, uh, and, and don't, and can't, uh, iterate quickly. So a great example of this is, uh, when zoom, came out so like what there were people doing conferencing video, video conferencing forever you know webex uh skype etc but for some reason the entire population had just ac accepted a shitty experience and and not really moved on from that but zoom was able to come in capture a large piece and 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 really you know quickly rise to 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 their ipo and and and, and exit so um so that, that there's good competition and then there's bad competition this is something that, okay, there is a large number of companies that are either a year or two years head start on you that are well-funded by VCs and um, are all nimble and trying to capture the same thing. So we view those two things very separately. Um, and, uh, and I mean, and you're right, every single company that's almost ever existed has had competition when they've come out. And, and if they don't right now, they're going to um, the, at the slightest whiff of success. So, you know, I read, I've read a lot about um, kind of some of the earliest VCs um, uh, in the Valley, kind of back in the seventies and eighties with coming out and what they said, they always talked about um, Bill Gates and how Bill Gates knew his competition better than they knew themselves. So, so understanding not 
only what the name, who the competition, uh, competition is and what they're doing at a high level, but why they're going after it that way. What will make them successful? You know, what will not? What is your positioning against them? Um, I think that is having a well thought out plan and a, and um, view of your competition is so much more attractive than has have it, having someone say that they don't have any competition Be, because I think it just speaks to light years, a difference in knowledge in terms of what's going on in the space and where it will go in the next five to 10 years. So that was very well said. Um, you know, when it comes to competition, I sometimes t compare, you have the game battleship, right? And what's the, what's the easiest one to hit? It's that big aircraft carrier, right? Now think of, and, and that little tiny two peg boat yeah. is the one you're always shooting around. Now, the thing is, is if either one of those are in, in now let's put them in a swimming pool, try to turn an, a, a, a a battleship around in a swimming pool. It's really difficult to do. It takes a lot of three point turns and, uh, you know, and, and that's that agility. The bigger a company is, the, the less agile they've become. They have a whole process of God knows what to go through where the nimble agile assassin of sorts can can be quiet and and do things and make decisions quickly and this is the advantage of a 10 person company compared to a hundred thousand person company now there's the thing though if that if that big battleship does zero in on your position they can often blow you out of the water yes. or maybe just run you over and not even know you were there Yes. So there is there is some of that, but the ability to shift, pivot, change, and adjust is the beauty of the smaller company. So you know that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think uh, anybody that's in any industry, if you in fact don't have any competition, to me that's a red flag. I'm like, is this even a real market? Because in 2021, man, we're like we're running out of shit to do. Like, what's the, like? There's, you're going to have competition. There's someone doing what you're doing. And I also mentioned in my book, Million Dollar Bedroom, the moment, if you don't, the moment that word gets out that you have some kind success is a signal flare and it draws competition to it. You're on a ticking clock. So you either need to take off and get a lap ahead or you need to be ready to run that race with everyone right. else. So, you know, and, and, and once again, the, the, I agree. I think that, that I would be, I would be more apt to be, well, okay. So when we launched Gigabook, we, we gauged this the wrong way. We looked at Calendly and we were like, ah, you know, they do one thing, no big deal. We were more worried that Google was going to launch something like we did. And then we quickly realized that while, while what we were doing had a big total addressable market on many levels, what Google didn't even, Google is worried about way bigger shit than, yeah. than that. So, you know, it is what it is. All right. So I end my episodes at Startup Hustle. When I say my episodes. I'm not the only host of the show. Make sure to tune in on Tuesdays with Andrew Morgans. Learn all about e-commerce and, and Amazon. Uh, and then on Thursdays, join Lauren Conaway, the founder of Innovate Her. If that isn't enough Startup Hustle for you, head on over to our YouTube channel. Check out Startup Hustle TV, where we're showing you the real life in reality of entrepreneurship through the lens of entrepreneurs in any location, any industry, and at any stage of business. We have everything from home builders. We have another podcast. We have a hemp company. We have mixtape the game. We have enterprise software, international businesses. We got a whole lot of different people, and we're going to keep introducing new cast members. If you want to get involved, go to startuphustle.xyz. But First, it's time for the Founders Freestyle, where Garen and I will give our closing remarks, maybe some advice. I don't know. It's a freestyle, whatever we want to say. Garen, what would you like to say to all of the hustlers out there that are preparing to raise capital? What are your closing remarks, sir? Awesome. Um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. There's two separate processes, the, the process and the pitch. Think about them separately. <laughs> plan, plan just as much as... Uh, as you are to actually put together the deck and, and deliver that pitch. Um, the last thing I do want to say is talk about the role of, uh, of FOMO in, in raising from VCs. And it's, <laughs> it's a ridiculous concept, but, and uh, you know, it's not something that the VC industry should be proud of, but it's very, very real. And so understanding how real it is as a founder can be uh, 
really powerful. So FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, it drives a lot of VC and a lot of VC decisions. Um, the VC industry is not that big. People talk to each other. If you're able to create buzz amongst top VCs, the, world will, the word will get around quickly. And, and that's the time to lean in hard. You know, once you're marked as a, high, uh, as a highly promising or desirable startup, then you'll probably get interest from other VCs who are afraid of missing out on the deal because it, because it could because of that power law that I described earlier, the fact that like that one deal can make or break a, an entire fund. Um, you know, they'll want to move faster so they don't get left out. It's you know, FOMO, FOMO isn't easy to cultivate, but if you have it, make sure to lean in and use it to your advantage. I, I love that ad at the end. And and that's true. You know, uh, some of it's, and you mentioned, well, it's the, obviously that fear of missing out. And some of it's just ego driven, you know, so, it's like, yeah. Hey, I don't want to, I don't want to be the dumb guy that had this come across my desk and then we didn't like it and everyone else did. And uh, now you're, I don't know. So, so that's a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot of insecurity for people that are usually quite confident. Matt. So that's, that's the second thing. So FOMO is number one and Fools, F-O-L-S, fear of looking stupid is number two. Like the, the, those are the two things that that are driving VC decision making. And so understanding that as going in will put you in a good position to be successful. Well, the, the, those are such fun. So, so economically sound and fundamental. I think that, that <laughs> right. you know, I went to, at one point, I, I joke cause I, that I dropped out of five colleges. Well, one of them was a top 10 business school. And when I took Foles 101, <laughs> No, but it's real. Hey, but look, the that's the difference between between school and reality is on paper and reality. Like at, at business school, they they teach you that it goes A to B to C to D to E to F to G. But in reality, A couldn't get to C because B called in sick and then really needed to contact D. But the problem was is D had an inner office relationship with G. And then they broke up. So D didn't want to see G every day at work. So she, he quit. And then they had a hard time replacing D. So they skipped D and they went to E. And then they had to go back to D. You get it. It's like, that's, that's the world. We it's live a rat's in, nest. That's right. So that's reality. It, nothing's really linear. So I, for my freestyle, let me I'll try to get this right. Prior proper planning prevents poor performance. And you know, it's, it's, uh, it's true. So look, and you don't have to over prepare, but go in and be yourself, you know, be yourself, assume that you're talking to sophisticated people that will smell your bullshit and are going to check your facts. So I go in, you know, like the emperor has no clothes. That shouldn't be you. You can't be in the business. You can't engage in self-deception and crap because you're, you're going to get called out on it. Like, you're going to go through a diligence process. And then also like people just in general and smell and when you're not being authentic and genuine. So every business has problems. There's no such thing as a business without problems. So go in and be open about what problems you're solving for your users, clients, or buyers, but also about the problems that you need to solve for yourself. Because if you find the right investors, they are more than money. And that's the way you need to look at it. Some people are like, VC is bad. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want it. I'm like, let me see. Why wouldn't you want big bank and big help? to do big things, but go in and just, just lay it out there and don't be afraid to sell people on your big vision. You know, the thing that if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we would all have a Merry Christmas. So, but go in and say, look, this is what we're going to be great at first. When that goes well, this is what we have planned. And then we have options, which, which of those are we taking? I don't know yet. I would like to have your help, your input, and your guidance in figuring out where we go from there. Cause guess what? I've never been there. I haven't been there yet. I want to get there and I'm planning on it with your help, but I need help with this, this, and this to get there. And just, you know, here's the thing. And, and you'll find that the people you're talking to will be remarkably open back with you. They'll say, we have absolutely no expertise in this area, but we know a hell of a lot about this one. Great. Yep. Okay, but I still have this other problem. I, we can help help you find advisors, partners, sales. I don't know. You get it, but you can't look. 
people in general aren't mind readers, so they're not going to know what your problems are. They aren't going to know where you need help. Don't be afraid to talk about your strengths and some of your weaknesses. It's fair. I mean, is yeah. that a, is that a fair statement? I think that was very well said. I think that, uh, you know, like VCs will find out if you're not being real. Like you should assume that they... Yeah. You should assume yes. that they know the right metrics for your industry, or if they don't, they're going to find out very they're quickly. They're going to figure it out. Right. So, so right. and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the the uh, the the basic statement on that is: before someone writes you a check for several million dollars, they usually check a few things out. So, <laughs> right. I think that that's a fair assumption. So, once again, with me today, Garen Sharp Schwarberg from Six Four Five Ventures. Go to six four five ventures I'm getting out of here, man. I'll see you yeah. next time. Matt, I had fun. Thanks so much for having me. See ya. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Like we do it.